Good morning, noon, and night, wherever and whenever you are listening. You are listening to The Shift. This is The Shift, episode 18. It's being recorded on October 13th, 2017. If you like what you're listening to, please think about becoming a patron. You can go to patreon.com backslash the shift for that. If you want to find out more information about The Shift, please go to my Facebook page. That's The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at McKenty. Or for more information and my archives, please check out www.theshiftnow.com. My guest on the show today is Richard Rothstein, author of the book The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Richard is a research associate at the Economic Policy Institute, as well as a fellow at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. He is also at the Haas Institute at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a contributing editor at the American Prospect, where he writes about issues pertaining to racism, segregation, education, and poverty in the United States. Events of the past few years have thrust race relationships back into the forefront of public affairs. The myriad of police shootings and brutality against the African-American community led to the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and uprisings in Ferguson and Baltimore. In contrast, the ascension of the alt-right seems to bring back racial animosities that harken back to a darker period in the U.S. race relations. Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law gives us the history that reminds us how we got here and offers real solutions to heal the wounds of what sometimes looks like an impassable racial divide. Welcome, Richard Rothstein, to the program, and thank you for helping to make the shift. How are you doing today? Fine, thanks. Thank you very much. Well, why don't you just uh, give us a little bit more about your history and what made you want to write this book in the first place? What kind of led to it? Well, I spent most of my time over the last few decades writing about education policy. And it's clear to me, as it is to most uh, education analysts, that we have no hope of uh, solving our most serious educational problems so long as children are going to segregated schools. Uh, the schools that they're going to are more segregated today than any time in American history if, uh, outside the South, more segregated than any previous time. And the reason that they're more segregated is because they're located in segregated neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So unless we can understand how the neighborhoods became segregated and whether there's anything to do about that, it's not going to be possible to solve the most serious educational problems that we face. And of course, it's not just education of the kinds of violent conflicts between police and young men would not occur except for the fact that the young men are living in segregated neighborhoods without access to good jobs and without hope. Uh, so much of the inequality in the society is uh, the result of residential segregation. Uh, we know, for example, that the children who grow up in low income families who live in a low-income neighborhood have a much lesser chance of rising themselves to the middle class as adults than children with the same low income who grow up in an integrated neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So in so many different ways, residential segregation is the root of our social problems, and it's something that uh, I decided I had to look into to see if there was anything we could do about it. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy. When I read in the book that that schools are more segregated today than, than really any other time in American history, it kind of, it's a slap in the face almost because you hear so much about the history of desegregation and how important it was and what happened. And so you just naturally, I think most Americans assume that things are better now, but they, they actually aren't because the neighborhoods themselves were never integrated. So if a school is in an African-American neighborhood, then everybody that goes to that school is African-American and the problem is just kind of continued. Will you go into some detail? The book is kind of talks about the difference between de facto and de jure um, uh, factors that have caused this segregation. Can you discuss that and uh, why you decided to kind of use that as uh, your parameters for writing the book? Sure. Well, I didn't decide on it. The Supreme Court decided on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started working on this uh, in 2007 when the Supreme Court issued a school desegregation decision in Louisville, Kentucky and Seattle, Washington. Uh, both of those places had uh, very token uh, school uh, desegregation plans. In both places, they uh, uh, allowed parents to choose the school at which their uh, students would attend, uh, high school students. But if the choice tended to exacerbate the racial isolation of the school, 
that choice wouldn't be honored to the extent that the choice that helped to integrate the school was honored. So, for example, if uh, uh, you had an overwhelmingly white school and uh, both a black child and a white child applied for the uh, sole remaining place, uh, the uh, black child would be given some preference because that child would help to integrate the school. Mm-hmm. A very, very token plan. Uh, very few uh, parents or children want to go to schools outside their neighborhood and away from their friends anyway. And uh, the cases where there's one place left is very, uh, very slight. So it was a token plan. But the Supreme Court said you couldn't do it. They prohibited both districts from implementing these plans. And the court's reasoning was that if you had school segregation, that was the result of schools being in segregated neighborhoods. And if the neighborhoods were segregated de facto, by which they meant just really by accident because of private prejudice or perhaps a real estate agents who steered families uh, to same race neighborhoods, mm-hmm. or maybe because African-Americans didn't have enough income to live in middle-class neighborhoods, or maybe just because people like to live with others of the same race. For all of those individual non-governmental reasons, they call it de facto segregation. And they said, well, you have de facto segregation. Uh, it's not a violation of the Constitution, unlike the other segregations that we've had in, in American history. It's just an accident. And if you have uh, that kind of accidental segregation, there's nothing not only you can do about it, but there's nothing you can be permitted to do about it. Mm-hmm. They contrasted that with the jury segregation, which is the segregation that's caused by government law or policy or regulation. And if there was de jure segregation, then uh, the court would say, well, yes, of course it can be remedied. But the court mistakenly said that both segregation and Louisville and Seattle was de facto, not the jury. It was a nothing wrong with their theory. It was their facts that were wrong. And uh, that's what my book is uh, attempting to demonstrate, how wrong those facts were and are. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, actually, because there is this tendency, I think, to believe that most racism and even I mean, even in the conversations that I have about racism right now today, it's it's you're mostly thinking about. Uh, you know, that people are just have racism issues, that it's a personal choice, that it's a kind of a private personal matter. And until we can change individual hearts and minds about the race, about race relationships, then we're not going to be able to change this problem. But uh, in your book, In the Color of Law, you really outline how there was basically a, a solid hundred years of government action that created this racial divide. And then what I found even most interesting, we can get into this later in the conversation, is how difficult it's been to then overcome that in the last 40 or 50 years, as I think, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of those de facto prejudices, at least in my experience, have gone more or less by the wayside. Unfortunately, they seem to be coming back now. I mean, I feel I felt like, you know, Americans culturally have made some some pretty big strides in the last 30 or 40 years compared to. The stories that I would hear from my grandparents, for example. Um, but and yet economically, I don't, it doesn't really seem to be the case. I mean, the African-American communities are still kind of stuck and on the other side of the tracks. In so many cases, they're having a hard time getting beyond this. Um, and so looking into these de jure um, reasons why, uh, I think then you can start looking at a, a real solution. Hopefully we're starting to get to a real solution, because I think even as culturally, maybe people have become more aware per, on a personal level. It hasn't changed these fundamental economic issues. Um, so we should go and just describe for everyone what are the constitutional laws. I wanted to get started here. If we know the difference between de jure and de facto, then the Supreme Court's usually discussing the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, right, to apply these two, um, which really do require that the government at least be uh, non-racially discriminatory. Um so can you can you discuss in an ideal world with a real solid interpretation of the Constitution what that would look like? Well, it's the Fifth Amendment, uh, the 13th and the 14th Amendments. The Fifth okay. Amendment requires that the federal government treat everybody equally uh, and prohibits uh, certainly prohibits racial discrimination by the federal government. The uh, 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, but also uh, abolishes the characteristics of slavery, which really entail any kind of second-class citizenship that's maintained even after slavery itself was abolished. And that would include uh, prohibiting people from uh, buying and selling property on an equal basis. 
And the 14th Amendment prohibits uh, state and local governments from uh, acting in a discriminatory fashion. Uh, all of those amendments were consistently violated by federal, state, and local governments in the uh, mid-20th century, really, to create residential segregation in every metropolitan area in this country. It's not that people's hearts and minds weren't prejudiced. Uh, they were in most cases and uh, perhaps may even still be. But without government policy, we would not have the kinds of segregated neighborhoods that we have today. Uh, we have a situation today where every metropolitan area is residentially segregated. And that would not exist except for government policy. If uh, the government had enforced the Constitution, people would have learned to live with one another. Uh, not everybody would initially have been happy with it at first, but they would have learned to live with one another. Instead, the government created segregation where it hadn't previously existed. So let's get into the history then. I mean, we've got uh, a, this, the period of Reconstruction where theoretically there were some some strides, some forward motion right after the Civil War for 20 or 30 years there. Um, but then this, you know, sharecropping got started, things like that, which which still regulated African-Americans to this second class citizenship that you're talking about that should have been uh, opposed by the the 13th Amendment. Um, but so just, you know, go back and what happens after Reconstruction? How does this segregation start happening and, and where does the government get involved? Well, the issue of Reconstruction and uh, the other issues that you were talking about were issues that applied only to the former Confederacy mm -hmm. in the South. But the policies of segregation, uh, the design of segregating every metropolitan area in the country was not a Southern policy. It was a policy that was implemented in the East and the Midwest and the, the Central States and the Rust Belt throughout the country. Um, I can describe what some of those policies were, and I think... Uh, they're policies that, as I say in the book, have been forgotten. We, we forget that the federal government imposed segregation in the North, in the Midwest, in the West. Mm -hmm. So uh, I mentioned uh, before, uh, or I guess you mentioned, that the uh, neighborhoods used to be much more integrated than they are today in the, uh, in, in the early and mid-20th century. Uh, if we were transported back to urban areas in the South and the North, uh, back uh, of a hundred years ago or 70 or 80 years ago, we would be surprised to see the extent of integration. And the simple reason was that uh, uh, workers didn't have automobiles to get to work. And most factories and workplaces were downtown. So workers had to live in the same neighborhoods in order to uh, be able to get to work. They had to be able to walk to work. Mm -hmm. And so you had neighborhoods of, of uh, Irish workers and Italian workers and Jewish workers and African-Americans and migrants from rural areas all living in the same neighborhoods and walking to work. They were integrated neighborhoods. Uh, the federal government began in 1933 uh, to demolish some of those neighborhoods and create segregated public housing instead. Uh, the, uh, the first public housing, civilian public housing in this country, was created under the New Deal, uh, Franklin Roosevelt's administration, with the, the agency, the Public Works Administration, that built the first of civilian public housing in this country, and it built it on a segregated basis, frequently demolishing integrated housing in order to create segregated public housing and creating a pattern that uh, exists to this day. This public housing was not for poor people. The public housing that was built by the federal government in the 1930s was for middle class, working class families who didn't have homes in the Depression. And uh, the government imposed segregation on neighborhoods that hadn't had it before. I, I mentioned in my book, and maybe some of your listeners are familiar with it, uh, Langston Hughes, the great African-American poet, uh, a novelist, playwright, uh, who wrote an autobiography called The Big C. And in his autobiography, he describes how he grew up in an integrated neighborhood in uh, downtown Cleveland. It's, uh, we don't think today of downtown Cleveland as being an integrated place, but uh, that's where Langston Hughes grew up in the early 20th century. He describes how he went to high school, an integrated high school. His best friend was Polish. He dated a Jewish girl. This was characteristic of urban neighborhoods at that time. The Public Works Administration demolished housing in that neighborhood where Langston Hughes lived and created separate projects for African-Americans and for whites, creating a pattern of segregation that hadn't previously existed and helping to structure 
segregation for the future in the Cleveland, in Cleveland and its metropolitan area. And this went on all across the country. Mm -hmm. In my book, I, I like to describe places like uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts and uh, uh, Berkeley, California, because these are thought of as being the most liberal areas in the country. And I figure if people can understand that the government imposed segregation on these places, they can understand it happened everywhere. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, there's an area called Central Square near MIT, uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, it was an integrated neighborhood in the 1930s, about half white, half black. Uh, the federal government, the Public Works Administration, demolished housing in that neighborhood and uh, created separate projects, one for whites, one for African-Americans. Mm. Uh, this went on, went on uh, all across the country, in the South, in Atlanta, in St. Louis. Integrated neighborhoods were destroyed by the government in order to build segregated housing. In all of these cities, and many others I haven't mentioned, the, the government created segregation where it hadn't previously existed. Yeah, I think you talked about Houston, too. I grew up in Houston, so it kind of caught my attention that uh, in 1910, Houston, and people think of the South also. I mean, that was another thing that uh, kind of surprised me in the book is that, you know, people think of the South as being this, this, the racist part of the country. But as you're saying, I, mean, I think the first chapter was about San Francisco because you're saying these liberal parts of the country that you would think wouldn't have these problems, but they do because the federal government came in and really imposed segregation nationwide. But that Houston uh, in Texas was really a very integrated city in 1910, 1920. And then the segregation moved in by uh, forcing certain schools in certain areas of town, an African-American hospital in the one area of town that eventually everybody would move there. Um, let's get into a lot of the different tactics that were used, because there it wasn't just one tactic, but a variety of tactics, layer upon layer of different ways that the government got involved and eventually sort of pushed people apart into these segregated neighborhoods. Can you talk about that? I know like zoning was one when the highways came through a lot of times they would come through certain neighborhoods and then and then work to, to separate uh, the races. Um, yeah, well, I mean, what are sure. your thoughts about sure. that? Let, Go me, ahead. Let, me, let me correct one thing, though. I, I wouldn't call Houston a very integrated uh, community in the early 20th century, but it wasn't mm -hmm. segregated the way it is today. Fair enough. Certainly uh, pockets, and, and, uh, but it was, it was overall a mix throughout the area. You could find African-American uh, living, and, and um, they were, as you say, forced to move by city plans that uh, uh, Houston, of course, at the time had segregated schools. And so if you place schools for African-Americans in one part of town and schools for whites in another part of town, Families had to move to segregated neighborhoods in order to, if their mm. children were to be educated. And that was, a, a, there's a historian in Chicago, a Karen Benjamin, who's written extensively about this and documented how the schools were placed in places like Houston and Raleigh, North Carolina, and Atlanta, Georgia, specifically for the purpose of creating housing segregation. Uh, it wasn't the other way around. It wasn't that housing segregation created school segregation. It's the segregation of schools created the housing segregation. But in the North, it was um, there weren't segregated schools like that. And so that wasn't the device that was mostly used. Uh, I mentioned before uh, public housing, but there was another kind of housing that was built by the government uh, in, the, um, in, in the World War II period when hundreds of thousands of workers flocked to centers of defense production uh, and uh, needed places to live. As you mentioned, I focus uh, uh, in the book on the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, there's a town just north of Berkeley uh, called Richmond, uh, which was the center of shipbuilding in the country at that time. The Kaiser Shipbuild shipyards were constructing ships for the war effort. Uh, Richmond uh, was a. Uh, it's on the East Bay of San Francisco. Uh, it's a community. Was a community before World War II of about 20,000 people, a little bit less uh, by the end of World War II. It had nearly 100,000 in just four years. The community grew from 20,000 to 100,000. It's unbelievable that the community could grow that fast. Right. And if, if the government was going to have uh, the shipyards continue to produce ships, it had to find places for the people to live. 
So the government actually built housing in Richmond. It was a, a white community before that. It wasn't really a segregated community. There were a handful of African-Americans living there working as domestic servants for white families, but this wasn't a segregated community. But the government built housing for African-American shipyard workers along the railroad tracks and in the industrial area, and for white uh, shipyard workers uh, more in the residential area where white families were living creating segregation in Richmond that hadn't existed before. Mm -hmm. In San Francisco itself, the government during World War II built uh, five public housing projects. Four of them were in white areas, um, and uh, African-Americans were prohibited from applying to live, well, prohibited from living in them. Uh, one of them was in, a, in a, an area called the Western Edition, which had a few African-Americans living there before the war, and the government built a project for African-Americans only in that area uh, creating segregated pattern in San Francisco that hadn't previously existed. And this also went on all over the country. Uh, I can, uh, it, after World War II, there was still an enormous civilian housing shortage in the country, uh, not only because uh, very few homes had been built during the Depression, but because uh, civilian uh, construction materials were prohibited for use for civilian purposes during World War II, so no housing was built then. And then after World War II, you've got hundreds of thousands of millions of war veterans returning, uh, needing housing. So there was an enormous housing shortage. And President Truman um, uh, proposed a vast new public housing program to house again. Remember, we're talking about working families, not poor people. Uh, they were paying the full cost of housing, mm -hmm. public housing and their rents. President Truman proposed a vast expansion of the public housing program. And Congress voted on whether to have an integrated program for the first time. And uh, it voted not to. Congress voted down a, a provision that would provide for integrated public housing. And so public housing in 1949 was expanded on a segregated basis. And on that basis, projects were built all across the country, um, uh, segregating communities that had uh, previously been segregated or reinforcing segregation that had taken root, but wasn't nearly as strong as it was afterwards. Uh, perhaps the most uh, famous of the uh, high-rise towers that was built uh, after uh, the 1949 Housing Act was passed is the Pruitt-Igo Towers in St. Louis, but uh, your listeners probably are familiar with others, or the Robert Taylor Homes in Chicago, or many others like that. Um, these were segregated projects. The Pruitt-Igo Towers in St. Louis uh, were two separate projects. The Pruitt Towers were for African Americans, the Igo Towers were for whites. And soon after these projects were built uh, in the early 1950s, uh, a development occurred where you had large numbers of vacancies in the white projects, mm -hmm. large numbers of, of long waiting lists in the uh, projects that were designated for African Americans. And that all happened because of a second federal program which was a program that was designed explicitly to suburbanize the white population into single family homes in the suburbs. Uh, the way this happened was a new, another federal uh, agency, the Federal Housing Administration, uh, subsidized large mass production builders to build entire suburbs uh, on a racially exclusive basis. Uh, before this time, before the FHA did this, the Federal Housing Administration did this, most housing construction was on a house by house or maybe two or three houses at a time basis. You couldn't build giant subdivisions because there was no way to raise the capital. Right. Build them before there was any, were any buyers. So perhaps the best known of these uh, uh, is Levittown, uh, east of New York City. Uh, your listeners are probably familiar with that, but there were many others uh, in every metropolitan area, really. Uh, Pete Seeger used to sing a song uh, that Malvina Reynolds wrote uh, about houses on a hillside, little boxes. Right, uh, classic. And they all just look the same. That was a federal housing administration, segregated community uh, created south of San Francisco. Uh, uh, Los Angeles is a big symbol of suburbanization in the 1950s and, and 60s. Uh, Lakewood, south of Los Angeles, uh, uh, Panorama City, north of Los Angeles, all of these were built by uh, builders with Federal Housing Administration uh, subsidy on condition that no homes be sold to African-Americans. So, for example, when, when uh, Levitt, who could, as I say, never have assembled the capital 
to build 17,000 homes for which he had no buyers. He went mm -hmm. to the Federal Housing Administration. He submitted his plans for the development. The plans had to include a promise not to sell homes to African-Americans. The Federal Housing Administration further required that he include a clause in every deed in Levittown prohibiting resale to African-Americans or rental to African-Americans. And he could take this FHA agreement then to a bank and get a guaranteed loan to build the 17,000 uh, house development. And the same thing happened, uh, you know, as I say, in Daly City, south of San Francisco, or hundreds of Houston, there was a, a major development like that. Um, in every uh, uh, metropolitan area in the country, the FHA financed these uh, developments. So the whites who were living in public housing were leaving public housing and moving into these subsidized the single-family homes in the suburbs. They were leaving rental apartments in cities, even if they weren't public. Um, to give you an, an idea of how uh, enormous this incentive was, white families who moved out of public housing and into FHA or VA, the VA uh, piggybacked on FHA policies, an FHA or VA uh, subdivision suburb mm -hmm. like Levittown, uh, White families who moved out of public housing uh, into these suburbs paid less than their monthly mortgage charges, uh, and they had no down payment if they were veterans, uh, for their single-family homes than they were paying for rent in public housing. So that's why you had the large number of vacancies uh, the, in, in the white projects and long waiting lists in the black projects. It's not that African-Americans couldn't have afforded to move into these developments. The houses were very inexpensive. Any working-class family could have afforded. Levittown houses sold for $7,000, $8,000 a piece, and today that might be $90,000 um, for a house uh, in today's dollars. Uh, family, working families can afford with an FHA mortgage or a VA mortgage that requires no down payment to buy a house like that. African-American families could have, but they were prohibited from doing so, and so they continued to rent either public housing or rental apartments in cities. Eventually, uh, the situation in public housing became so conspicuous with all of these white vacancies and uh, long waiting lists in the black projects that all project projects were opened up to African-Americans. And at the same time, uh, as, as you probably know, uh, industry was leaving cities. So mm -hmm. people were becoming poorer and poorer who lived in cities. There were fewer and fewer jobs. So the people in public housing became poorer. After a while, uh, the housing projects had to be subsidized because people couldn't afford to rent even public housing projects if they had no jobs. And they became the kinds of uh, low-income, uh, stereotypical slum developments uh, that we became familiar with in public housing. But that's not, that's not how it began um, when it began as a segregated program. Yeah, this is just fascinating. I mean, as I was reading your book, you were describing a situation where so many so many programs for housing were, were being developed for, for the white population and so few for the black population that the, the cost of black housing or African-American housing, actually the supply was so low for the demand that they would have to, it would, it would be more expensive to get a house in a rundown neighborhood where an African-American could live than it would be. And, and I mean, the worst part about it is, of course, there were African-American veterans who weren't getting these to be to participate in these veteran programs where white veterans were getting, you know, subsidized housing, basically, and, and you know, getting hooked up with great houses in the suburbs. And African-Americans are having to put more money down and spend more money for less house. Um, and they're they're having to compete. So where did the African-American neighborhoods end up and how how did African-Americans find housing in the 40s and 50s while this was going on? Well, they, they found very little housing and they doubled up and they tripled up and mm -hmm. they uh, subdivided their homes. Uh, occasionally, the FHA would insure a mortgage for an African-American in an African-American neighborhood, always segregated, never in a white suburb that it was creating. Uh, but mostly African-Americans had to buy homes without the benefit of an FHA or VA mortgage. The terms they had were much, much more onerous than those that whites had. Frequently, they had to buy uh, on the installment plan, uh, not an amortized mortgage. And so they gained no equity from those homes. And uh, if they missed the payment, they'd be evicted and lose everything that they put into it. So the, the neighborhoods in which they lived became more and more overcrowded. Uh, as I say, doubled up, tripled up families. Uh, when that happened, 
Uh, cities didn't provide adequate services. Uh, the neighborhoods deteriorated. Um, an overcrowded neighborhood became deteriorated. There wasn't enough garbage collection, uh, uh, not enough sewer construction. Mm -hmm. They turned into slums. White families looked at these neighborhoods and concluded that African-Americans were slum dwellers and uh, became more resistant to having African-Americans living in their own neighborhoods, thinking they were going to bring slum characteristics with them, not understanding that the slum conditions were created by government policy, uh, not by the African-American characteristics uh, created by government policy because African-Americans were excluded from living in the single family homes in the suburbs that whites were living in as their population grew. Right. One of the things that you mentioned, and it seemed like a pretty popular tactic, was if an African-American family was trying to move into a white neighborhood, on top of all of the other issues um, that that, you know, that they were had they had to confront just to even try to move into a white neighborhood. But then all the you know, the real estate agents and the other people in the neighborhood would say, oh, you know, if African-Americans start moving in, that's going to lower our property values. And this was one of the ways that they got around some of the, the constitutional questions. They were saying, well, we can't, you know, we can't allow African-Americans in our neighborhoods because it'll lower our property values. How common was that? That was a that was a tactic that seemed to be used across the country to prevent African-American families from integrating. Well, you're describing a, a situation that happened everywhere, and the, the way it worked was this. Because, as uh, I said, African-Americans um, had so few options for housing, even middle-class African-Americans who had to pay much, much more for housing than white, similar white families had to pay. If a white family uh, in a community near uh, an African-American urban neighborhood wanted to sell a home, it was the white family's advantage to sell to an African-American rather than to a white family because the African-American was willing to pay much more right. for the home than a white family would. So typically you'd get a, a white family who, who wanted to sell their home for whatever reason, a job change or, or moving to a different neighborhood, nothing to do with race. But they learned that they could get much more money for it if they sold to an African-American. So they would. And so then the first African-American would move then into a neighborhood. Uh, typically, what happened then, well, several things happened. And frequently, um, a mob would surround the home, protected by the police. And this mm -hmm. is why I say this was government policy, because in case after case, the police uh, protected um, uh, mobs who uh, uh, tried to um, firebomb or dynamite uh, the home of an African-American who, who moved into a previously white neighborhood. I mentioned before uh, when we began talking that um, uh, the Supreme Court wouldn't let Louisville, Kentucky have a modest integration school plan, school integration plan, because the Supreme Court said that um, Louisville, Kentucky was segregated de facto. Well, in the 1950s, a, a white family in Louisville um, sold a home to an African-American. It was a white neighborhood. Uh, the African-American was middle class, a, a, a Navy veteran, decorated Navy veteran. Um, had a, a, a typical American family, uh, but a mob surrounded it. Uh, the place, the, the home was firebombed, the dynamited. And the state of Kentucky uh, arrested, uh, tried, convicted, and jailed the white seller for sedition. Right. So this is government action. This is not de facto segregation. Louisville mm -hmm. was, was segregated by this kind of government enforcement. Well, so one thing that might happen is when an African-American moved into a white neighborhood, you would get this kind of violence, typically protected by the police, sometimes even organized by the police. Um, the other thing that might happen, though, is that a real estate agent would then try to scare um, other families, white families in the community, that they would uh, their property values would decline because African-Americans are moving in. Now, remember, African-Americans were willing to pay more for housing than whites were. So quite the opposite was the case. Property values increased when African-Americans moved into a neighborhood. Right. And the Federal Housing Administration was well aware of this. They had, they had studies that showed this. They still propagated the notion that property values would decline. Well, a real estate agent would come into the neighborhood and uh, the taxes they used were, were quite uh, obnoxious. Uh, they, they frequently hired black women to... Uh, walk around the neighborhood wheeling baby carriages uh, to try to give people the impression that the, the neighborhood was turning all black. 
Uh, they hired young men to drive down the street blaring their radios, young African-American American men. Uh, one of these real estate agents uh, acknowledged that he had actually organized burglaries in the neighborhood to try to uh, convince uh, white families that they needed to leave. Of course, once they got scared, they would then sell their homes at much reduced prices to the real estate agents and or the speculators who were working with them. And then the, the, the agents could turn around and sell the homes to very inflated prices for African-Americans. The reason I, I want to make this point, the reason that I call this state-sponsored segregation, this is not de facto segregation, is every one of these real estate agents was licensed by a state licensing board. Mm -hmm. And this activity that they were engaged in was out in the open. It wasn't he sit hidden. It wasn't a... Uh, somehow uh, people didn't know about it. It was out, out in the open. They placed, the, uh, they placed ads in newspapers uh, advertising that this was a white neighborhood that African-Americans could buy into. Um, their, their activities, of the kinds of activities I described, were out in the open. So for, for state licensing boards to uh, maintain the licenses of real estate agents who engaged in these practices was a violation of their obligations under the 14th Amendment. This wasn't private activity of occasional real estate agents who were doing it without any uh, federal, any uh, rather state government approval. They had the full approval of the state. And I described cases uh, where complaints were made to the state licensing agency and the state licensing agencies replied that they had no jurisdiction over um, uh, discriminatory activity by real estate agents, which was not true at all. They had jurisdiction. They just chose to permit this kind of activity to go on. It's really amazing to get into this book and and find out how stacked the deck was against the African-American community during this time period. I mean, it was it, just amazing that they're building so many houses for white families and so few houses for African-American families that the, the cost of the African-American housing was actually higher, just supply and demand. And they had to put more money down. They couldn't get the mortgage backing from the FHA and other federal agencies. So... Um, just phenomenal. But but to describe one other thing that you describe uh, in the book about how then as factories would move in or factories would move around to certain areas and then white workers would get the housing right around the factories and there would there would be all of this development in the late 40s and 50s. But then African-Americans wouldn't be able to get jobs in these, you know, the jobs they could get in these factories. They couldn't get housing by the jobs anymore. So this was just another strike against the African-American communities where if they could get work at all in these factories, which was challenging enough because of, uh, you know, segregation within the workplace and racial bias within the workplace. But then to find housing close to work was nearly impossible. So you've got a couple of stories in the book of people that had to drive 100 mile commutes uh, just to make ends meet because there was no african-american community between where they lived and where the jobs were so can you get into that a little bit well yes i think you've described it accurately at the same time that the federal housing administration was creating single-family home suburbs at the same time that that was going on in the late 40s and 1950s and even 60s industry was moving out of the cities into these same suburbs uh, the technology was changing. Uh, industry no longer needed uh, multi-story factories, uh, buildings uh, uh, near a, a deep water port. Uh, they could now uh, be out in the suburbs where there's lots of land available and uh, uh, have single-story uh, continuous assembly lines. So the technology was changing. They, they could do that because uh, uh, highways were being built, and so they no longer needed to be near deep water ports. Uh, so the factories were moving out at the same time that the um, that the, the white suburbs were being created, as you say. I describe in my book one case where a uh, a Ford Motor plant that was located well actually in the same town I mentioned before, Richmond, California, uh, it had an integrated workforce um, uh, in Richmond. In 1955, uh, the Ford Motor Company decided to move that plant to a rural area in what's now called Silicon Valley. Uh, it wasn't developed at that time, uh, but developments were going up with FHA help for white families only. It was about uh, 60 miles away from uh, Richmond where um, uh, the uh, workers were living. The United Auto Workers negotiated an agreement with Ford Motor Company that uh, all the workers in the plant could keep their jobs and, and uh, in the new location. 
white workers could move to the new location, uh, African-Americans couldn't. And so, as you described, I talk about one uh, worker who was uh, African-American who with some uh, uh, friends that bought a van and they commuted over 100 miles each way just to be able to keep their jobs because they couldn't move south of Richmond uh, to be near the plant. Yeah, it's just phenomenal. I mean, um, all of this then ends up adding up to well, I mean, the ghettoization of the African-American neighborhoods, for one, but then over over the long term, they're having to pay more for housing. They have less expendable income because they're they're paying more to for travel, travel time to get to work. They're paying more in interest rates. They're paying more down payments. They're paying, you know, bigger mortgage payments. Um, and so... It, they're also ending up not getting the equity buildup that the the people that bought the white the white suburbs. So over the period of you know those those couple of decades, it seems to me like white families were able to amass hundreds of thousands of dollars, half a million dollars, a million dollars in some cases, buying these homes in 1950. By 1980 or 1990, you know they've got all this equity, but African Americans don't get the same. So over this amount of time. Can you just talk about the the numbers like you know how much how much did African Americans end up losing during that time period because they didn't have access to these houses back in the 50s? Sure, I mean you've put your finger on what is perhaps the most important lesson from this entire history. And that is I mentioned before that the homes in the places like Levittown or Panorama City or Daly City that were built with FHA uh, subsidy uh, on an exclusively white basis. They sold for about in today's dollars about eighty, ninety thousand dollars, about uh, seven, eight thousand uh, dollars at that time. But in today's dollars, a little bit less than a hundred thousand. As you say, today those homes in places like Levittown and all of the other suburbs like it sell for three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars a piece. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do the arithmetic you just did. Uh, white families over the next couple of generations. Gained 200, 300, 400,000, maybe half a million dollars in equity from living in those homes. African Americans who were forced to continue renting apartments, either public housing or, or rentals in, in urban areas, gained no such equity. Uh, the white families uh, used their, their wealth, their equity, to send children to college. Uh, they used it to take care of medical or, or employment emergencies. Uh, they used it uh, uh, for taking care of their uh, uh, elderly parents. And most importantly, they bequeathed it to their children so that their children could then have down payments for homes. Uh, African-Americans who uh, were not permitted to move into these suburbs gained none of that equity. The result is that today, on average, African-American incomes are about 60%, 60% of white incomes. But African-American wealth is only about 10% of white wealth. And that enormous difference between a 60% income ratio and a 10% wealth ratio is entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy that was practiced in the mid-20th century. And it's the cause of much of the inequality that we have in this country today. Yeah. Yeah, that's shocking. When you take those statistics together with what we talked about at the very beginning of the interview, which is that segregation in, in terms of schools is essentially worse than it was 50 years ago, you really start to see the enormity of the problem that still exists. I mean, that's it's so strange to me. I mean, that's what I got out of your book was learning this history, but also seeing uh, how that history turned into the present day inequality that we're that we're seeing um, and, and how stark it still is, even though it seemed like there was some progress. So can we it, it seems like from, say, 1955, certainly the civil rights movement by 1965, 1965 through 1970, you do start to see at least some realization that things need to change, um, you know, obviously with people like Martin Luther King getting in the news and making things, you know, raising the awareness. There were some laws that were passed and there was some some measure of change. Can you talk about what did happen during that period that was positive uh, and maybe even maybe why it wasn't enough? You know, obviously it didn't really have lasting effect. Well, the, um, 
Yeah, as you say, during that period, we passed a lot of civil rights laws abolishing segregation in many areas of American life. Uh, we started out actually in the 1930s abolishing segregation in law schools, then in graduate schools. Uh, then it was K through 12 education in Brown versus Board of Education, 1954. And then into the 1960s, we abolished segregation in, in public accommodations, on buses and trains, uh, even in water fountains, um, uh, employment. Uh, but in 1968, we uh, passed the Fair Housing Act, which was allegedly uh, uh, designed to accomplish the same thing in housing. But the Fair Housing Act couldn't accomplish it in housing because all it did was prohibit future uh, discrimination in housing. It wasn't well enforced, but even if it had been enforced, it would have done nothing to remedy the past segregation that had been created by the policies I've described. So saying to African-Americans that you can now move into Levittown when the homes are now selling for six times national median income, whereas in the 1950s when they were $100,000, that was only twice national income, uh, working class families could afford it, to say to them now, okay, you're no longer prohibited from moving to Levittown or Daly City or these other uh, communities, uh, doesn't do much to uh, remedy the segregation that government has created. We need much, much more aggressive remedies than the civil rights laws that we've passed so far. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you mentioned is that by the end of the 60s, you did start to see some equalization in terms of the African-American and the white communities, so, some more integration, but also some some more equalization in, in the wage gap that had been so prevalent before. But then by the mid 70s, uh, productivity for everyone starts to decline. So just as soon as the African-American community starts to get a little piece of the pie, then the pie kind of levels out and, and everyone is not getting quite as much as they were. So, so African-American communities missed out on that golden age in the 50s and the early 60s when white families were able post-World War II to gain so much equity, you know, in terms of buying that suburban house that ended up you know, providing their family long term with, you know, a few generations of capital in some cases um, the African-Americans missed out on that. Right when they start to get some gain, everything seems to level out. Uh, and then what happens in the late 70s and the 80s to the African-American communities? Are you seeing more gains or, um, are, you know, are they still kind of it, it just didn't pan out? Well, there have been some gains, but uh, not nearly enough to uh, address the residential segregation that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned, you know, the wealth gap that we talked about a few minutes ago. If, if African-Americans uh, don't get the kinds of down payment uh, assistance from their parents that whites get, they can't um, uh, buy homes in the suburbs. Some middle class African-Americans have been able to do so. So there has been some progress. We have a pretty uh, vibrant African-American middle class in this country today, which we wouldn't have had. Uh, were it not for uh, the civil rights laws that we uh, adopted in the 1960s for the affirmative action that we practiced for a number of years. Uh, that's all helped. But uh, we still have segregated neighborhoods everywhere in the nation. And that's because of the policies, the federal, state, and local policies that have been remedied. Uh, it's no accident that the African-American uh, workers didn't make the kind of progress that white workers made after World War II uh, in income. It's not the, it, one of the things I, I, I talk about uh, in, in my book is it's not just housing policy, it's labor market policy. In 1935, uh, the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act was adopted as a segregated program. The federal government was authorized to certify unions uh, uh, as the exclusive bargaining agents uh, for uh, their workers, even if those unions excluded African-Americans from membership. This wasn't an accident. The issue was debated in Congress, and the Wagner Act was passed explicitly as a program that authorized the certification of segregated unions or unions that excluded African-Americans entirely. The result is that the construction unions, uh, during the big boom period of the post-war uh, years, uh, the construction unions that were building the suburbs that we were talking about excluded African-Americans from membership. African-Americans were not only not permitted to live in those suburbs, they weren't permitted to, to work in their construction. And so when in the period when white workers 
were making these enormous income gains uh, in, in the workforce uh, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, up until about 1973, uh, African-American workers were not. It wasn't until the late 1960s that the federal government stopped certifying unions that excluded African-Americans from membership. But that, as you say, is just about the time that the economy stopped growing so fast. Mm-hmm. And white workers had already built up the, uh, the savings to be able to uh, get a foothold in the middle class. African-Americans were not able to do so for the most part. I don't want to exaggerate it. We do have a, a substantial black middle class today, which is uh, thriving as it should be. Yeah. Well, and then on top of that, then you describe how difficult it is to move upward through economic mobility it, for everyone, not just African Americans, but since they've since they've already been placed in this on this lower rung as a result of these policies in the '40s and '50s uh, and '60s, then at this point, it's just incredibly challenging to to. You, you know, the old notion that you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps doesn't really play out in the statistics, does it? When you start looking at it for anybody in this economy, really, but especially uh, it, that hits pretty hard in the African-American communities. Well, as I said earlier in our discussion, uh, if uh, you're a low income African-American, you have a better chance of moving up to the middle class of your children, moving up to the middle class if you're living in an integrated neighborhood than if you're living in a segregated one. So segregation itself impedes mobility. Mobility isn't very fluid in this country to start with, mm-hmm. but it's least fluid for people living in segregated low-income neighborhoods. So then at the end of the book, when you get into talking about solutions, well, I guess, you know, one other thing I wanted to bring up before we get into this, it was that even in, uh, you do discuss even in 2007, 2006, 2007 with the subprime mortgages, those were attacking low-income African-American, primarily African-American communities as well. So we're still seeing this same kind of essentially racism, institutional racism in the system that's that's continuing to keep these uh, these neighborhoods segregated and, and, and kind of, and kept down. Well, that's true. Uh, I, I don't like to talk about institutional racism. I think that's a euphemism. Mm-hmm. Um, what we really need to be looking at is government-sponsored segregation. And in the case you're describing as well, every one of the banks that was engaged in this subprime lending activity uh, was supervised very heavily by banking regulators. There's no industry in the country that's uh, segregated. Uh, that, that's I'm sorry, no industry in the country that's supervised as closely as banks. There are bank regulators from uh, the Federal Reserve uh, Board, from the office at the time of the Office of Thrift Supervision, uh, from the controller of the currency. All of them are investigating the on an ongoing basis the loan practices of banks, and they were well aware of the uh, of systematic uh, discriminatory activity that banks were engaged in, marketing subprime loans only to African Americans. Uh, who could have um, been eligible for conventional loans, who had all the financial and credit history to be able to get conventional loans, marking them specifically to African-Americans. There have been lawsuits against some of these banks. Uh, Witnesses testified that they were told that the subprime mortgages were called by bank supervisors, ghetto loans. They were told to go out to churches to market them, black churches to market them, not to white churches. Um, and this was all done under the watchful eye of federal regulators. So this was a form of, of uh, a violation of the responsibilities of federal regulators under their under the Fifth Amendment. Yeah, it's amazing to me that this kind of stuff can still go on, uh, you know, 40, 50 years after Martin Luther King. I'm just um, I'm just shocked that the African-American community still have to deal with this kind of stuff. But um when you get into talking about solutions and you do talk about how, you know, in the current political climate, of course, this isn't going to happen. But you really see that African-American communities have have uh, a right to reparations for damages that they didn't receive the hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity that many uh, white families were able to get because they were allowed to purchase these these subsidized houses in the suburbs in the 50s. Um, and so you're actually, you know, you're willing to go as far as to, 
you know, offer offer some houses, you know, have the government buy houses in some of these suburbs that are now worth three or four hundred thousand dollars and sell it to African American communities to what their nineteen fifties value would have been. <laughs> I mean, that was one of your one of your potential solutions. I mean, let's so why don't we get into that? I mean, that was one idea. What are some others, some other ways that we might be able to address this problem? Well, I'm not gonna go there with you. Uh uh-huh. I think that um the, the main emphasis I want to make, and I certainly do throw out that as the kind of policy we might someday uh, adopt, but it's not uh, conceivable today in the current political environment. The main point I want to make is that we're not going to be able to uh, uh, address any of these uh, issues, uh, remedy any of the segregation that was imposed by government until people understand the history, because this is where we started out our conversation. Uh, the Supreme Court has said that so long as we think that this all happened by accident, that the government had no role in creating segregation, we're not permitted to remedy it. So the first step has to be to engage in a national conversation, a national education program, where we relearn this history so that we can begin to understand that not only can we remedy it, but we're obligated to remedy it. If segregation was created by government, it can be uh, undone by government. And that's the important lesson that we need to learn, that this didn't happen by accident. If it happened by accident, it's very hard to imagine how accidents can undo it. If it happened by government, it's easier to think of policies, and the one you mentioned is the most extreme one that I talk about, but it's easy to imagine policies that that could undo it. Uh, One of the things I focus on on in the book, uh, The Color of Law, is uh, how we teach this to high school students today. Yeah, uh, I examined uh, all the high school textbooks that are most commonly used in, in high schools today in American history. And not a single one of them tells the truth about this. Uh, the, uh, the most commonly used American high school textbook that I examined is something called The Americans. It's 1,200 pages, has one paragraph in it about uh, the subtitle, The Segregation in the North. One sentence in that paragraph is about the housing. And the sentence reads as follows. Uh, In the North, African-Americans were forced or found themselves forced into segregated neighborhoods. Um, No mention of who did the forcing, no mention of how this happened. It's so that they woke up one day and noticed they were in segregated neighborhoods. As long as we we teach our our young people this kind of misinformation, uh, they're going to be in this poorer position to remedy it when they're in positions of responsibility, as our generation has done. So the first and most important task is to uh, do a a public education program, not just in schools, but among the broader public so that we understand what once was well known. All the history I've just described was never hidden. Mm -hmm. Everybody knew the the public housing projects that they applied to were labeled either for blacks or for whites. Everybody knew if they bought a home in Levittown or in any of these other suburbs that their deeds prohibited them from selling to African-Americans. This was all out in the open. And unless we understand this history and recognize that the Supreme Court uh, is completely wrong when it calls it de facto segregation, we're not going to be in a position to to remedy it. If we understood that, there are many remedies that we could uh, embrace and discuss and and try to implement. Some of them might involve subsidies. Uh, You know, reparations is a term, but, you know, when we gave them to whites, we called them subsidies. Mm-hmm, and, right. Uh, some of them may involve subsidies. Some of them may involve policies that uh, uh, prohibit, for example, uh, suburbs from maintaining zoning ordinances that uh, restrict the development of townhouses or apartments or, or um, single family homes on small lot sizes. We could prohibit that kind of thing, which functions to exclude uh, low income minority families from those suburbs. So there are many, many policies that we could embrace. But we're not going to do it unless we understand that we're constitutionally obligated to do so. Mm-hmm. Right. So what do you think is going on then in the broader racial context right now? I mean, we're just coming out of this fiasco in Charlottesville and we have the, the rise of the alt-right happening uh, in this concept of identity politics that... I, you know, it seems to me when I was reading the book, maybe you can address this, is that the notion of identity politics maybe is playing too much to trying to remedy the de facto notion and not um, and not addressing the, the de jure notion that you'd like to see us, which is just more on a practical policy level, 
with the government taking responsibility for the fact that it's created this issue and being able to, uh, y- you know, change policy to make a difference going into the future. Where do you just see the overall like race relations right now in the United States? And what are some some potential, you know, ways that we can be looking at it now that can just start to improve the situation or start to create a more healthy dialogue that's I mean, that's I think, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this show was just to try to figure out how to create a, a better dialogue around the whole thing, because it seems like people just aren't they're talking around each other. Nothing is really changing, um, but we need to figure out how to, you know, how to kind of unstick this this place that we're in so we can start to get the energy to move in a more positive direction. Well, I, of course, uh, you know, you mentioned it, and I, of course, like everybody else, is a, a bit frightened by the exposure of white supremacist sentiment. Um, I don't think it's it's new, but it's exposed. It, it was always there, mm-hmm. and it's been empowered and enabled by uh, the current administration. Uh, so that's a frightening development. But we also have, at this time, a much more honest and uh, passionate an accurate discussion of the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow than I think we've ever had previously in American history. Um, so both are going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, refer frequently, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it, the, the speech that Mitch Landrew gave, the mayor of New Orleans, when he presided over the removal of uh, the, the statue of Robert E. Lee in, in New Orleans. A, I don't think a couple of years ago it would have been imaginable that a, a white Southern elected politician would make a speech that it was so accurate and passionate, not just about slavery and, and how awful it was, but what its consequences are today. Um, just recently, uh, a, a, a Nicole Hannah-Jones, a journalist, won a MacArthur Award, uh, one of the MacArthur Awards. Uh, for the work she's done in exposing the history of uh, segregation and how uh, government was involved and how uh, we need to, to address it. Uh, the popularity of uh, the work of ta Coates in the Atlantic is another indicator. And frankly, when I started writing this book, I didn't think it would get much attention. Uh, at the time, uh, in 2007, when I read that Supreme Court decision, uh, we were in a post-racial society. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, um, right. You know, nobody was taught. I, I figured I'd write the book because I, I thought it was important to expose this history, but I didn't think anybody would pay attention to it. Uh-huh. And it's gotten a lot of attention because we're in a period now where there's much more honest discussion about our racial history than ever, I think, ever before. So I'm encouraged by that. Um, it obviously needs to expand much, much beyond where it is today. Uh, but um, uh, that's, uh, I think that offsets the fear we may have of, of the white supremacist resurgence. And uh, I'm hopeful that the, the, the conversation about the, our racial legacy and the obligation we have to remedy it will continue and grow to the point where we can begin to enact some reasonable remedies. Yeah, well, that that sounds great. I mean, that's kind of uh, where I wanted to go with all of this, actually. I do think that there's reason to be positive, and I'm sure... You know, there's obviously a lot of work still needs to be done. And from the perspective of the African-American community, I'm sure they'd like to see it be done. But, um, you know, I know that things are at least, you know, in terms of my experience with my family and and my friends uh, compared to my grandmother, who was born in 1900, you know, um, our attitudes about uh, racial divisions are much more much much more open-minded and i think things are going in a positive direction and i hope that this current situation with the alt-right uh and this kind of resurgence of these sort of um more divisive feelings is just a kind of a hiccup or a bump in the road along the way and uh, maybe it's just a, a healthy part of the process in terms of being able to um you know, go back and revisit some of these things like in your book and find out what really happened. You know, I think describing as you did uh, the way it's getting the education system is treating it almost sounds like a little bit of denial. And maybe it's time, you know, for us as a culture to kind of go back and recognize what really happened and understand what the underlying causes of the current situation are. And that way we can start to move forward. So um, I'd like to I'd like to to keep that positive feeling going on about it and hope that things can move forward here in the next decade or so. Um, so anyway, it looks like we're getting a little bit over the hour. I really appreciate all the work that you've done. I did enjoy your book. Um, it is a history that I, I hope more and more people can wake up to. 
um, not just to take personal responsibility for feelings of racism, but really to understand that, that, that a lot of it has a, a, this history in the system and in the government and that changing government policy is a real way to move forward with all of this. So if you just want to take a minute to conclude in any way that you want and then maybe uh, offer up your website or where people can get in touch with you if they want more information or if they want to get a copy of the book. Well, uh, the book is called The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. And it's widely available in bookstores on uh, online and Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Or um, if people uh, want to find other articles I've written beyond the book, uh, beyond the, the color of law. I've written a number of uh, summaries of uh, different parts of it. They're all available at the uh, webpage of the Economic Policy Institute, which is www.epi.org. And I've got a page there. It's not hard to find. Uh, they have a, a tab at the top called Experts. And if you scroll down to my name, you'll find many articles that I've written on this topic. Uh, my email address is there on that page, and I'm uh, happy to correspond with any of your listeners who may have questions after they've read the book or even before they've read the book about uh, these issues. So thank you very much. All right, you bet. Thank you so much for being on the show. That was Richard Rothstein. If you like what you're hearing, please think about becoming a patron for The Shift. That's patreon.com backslash The Shift. If you want to find out more information about the show, join our Facebook page. That's The Shift with Doug McKenty on Facebook. Join the conversation on Twitter at D McKenty. And as always, you can go to my website at www.theshiftnow.com for all of my archives and more information about the show. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks again for being on the show, Richard. Really happy to have you on. And I hope everything goes well with the book and on into the future as we try to figure out how to get through uh, you know, these difficult times with uh, what's going on with race relations right now. But thanks, thanks again. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you.